What are the realities of dealing with climate change? How extensive are the changes humanity must make in order to reverse it? Join us as we unravel the intricacies and the scale of this pressing issue. From changing weather patterns to changing energy sources to changing attitudes, it's certainly a challenge that descends the political and cultural boundaries, reminding us that we're all in this together. On this podcast, we bring you the visionaries who are driving hard at the environmental response across energy, technology, psychology, finance, and more. Today, our special guest, change expert Katie Patrick, shows us a better way to look at this looming disaster. Amidst the challenges, there is a glimmer of possibility. We explore the world of renewable technologies, data, and beyond. It's time to redefine our relationship with Mother Earth. From energy data to gaming, we'll unveil the ways we can drive change in our homes and businesses. Fasten your seatbelts for an episode full of insights, solutions, and vision. Joining us on this enlightened journey is our esteemed guest, Katie Patrick. She's an expert at the forefront of change. I'm Leon Gerard Vandenberg from Sunified. This is Here Comes the Sun. Navigating the climate response. Let's dive in. Welcome to our podcast. Sunify Group can be found at sunify.com. Sunify is building solar panel sensors and a machine learning platform to solve the industry's biggest problems. Solar is quickly becoming the dominant source of energy globally, but critically, solar must overcome the issues of reliability and predictability. Sunified has created a low-cost solution that delivers significant performance benefits, making solar panels smart, reliable, and predictable. So welcome to the first episode of Here Comes the Sun. It's a podcast that looks deeply into the energy transition with a focus on solar and significant opportunities that are being developed with technology. I'm the technology officer for Sunified. So today, we're starting at the beginning. How do we motivate people to take up the transition quickly? How do we use new or existing technology in this role? Why is measurement so critical? Katie Patrick has a passion for creating positive change and a deep understanding of intricate connections within our ecosystem. She's a driving force in the world of sustainability, and her expertise spans a wide range of topics, from renewable energy to waste reduction strategies. Her unique perspective and experience, gained through years of dedicated research, has propelled her to the forefront of the movement for a greener, more conscious future. How are you, Katie? I'm great, thank you. How are you, Leon? I'm doing good. I'm in Amsterdam today. Where are you? I am in the heart of Silicon Valley in Mountain View. Um, you've had a really interesting journey. How did you get here? Can you tell us a little bit about the path and the journey you've traveled? Yeah, well, um, I'd always been into the environment like I'd always had one part of me was always uh deeply into design and art but then another part of me was also deeply into the environment which led me to study environmental engineering and work as a green building engineer then I built a green media company in Australia um, but everything that was about 15 years ago everything was moving towards Silicon Valley it was like social media was emerging I started my first company um at about the same time everybody had first heard of Google so over that journey, the uh, everybody was trying to you know build an app and building new software. This was a whole new world. So 
I moved to, you really had to like move to San Francisco or Silicon Valley to really follow that. That's where it was all, all happening. So I moved here about uh, 10 years ago, but I just, I didn't have the sort of confidence or swagger to really do the VC kind of programmer vibe. It was really uh, competitive, very um, male orientated. There was this whole sense that if you, if you weren't kind of like a Mark Zuckerberg carbon copy, you weren't really the sort of person anyone was looking for um, but I also realized that my my skills my Australian um, environmental engineering um, media skills were actually pretty primitive by Silicon Valley like Silicon Valley's technology scene is extremely advanced it's the most intelligent um, funded uh, complex um, ecosystem of technology you can find with literally really does have the smartest most educated people in the world here so I had to massively like upgrade my own technology skills to just be able to kind of like hang to be able to like get any recognition or sort of feel like I was making any progress so I kind of um, scoured around the hacker houses of Silicon Valley and San Francisco for a couple of years just learning how to code building prototypes um, learning about technology going to meetups really sort of living that deep nerd scene um, and in that process I became um, fascinated with feedback loops that became the sort of core center of my focus that I thought well if you can just if we can measure the planet if we can measure our impact and then we can show people that impact kind of the way a Facebook notification shows you that red dot and then maybe we can compare people kind of like games we could make it sort of like a Fitbit for the planet how am I meant to like save water if I don't even know how much water like my shower is producing and I, I want to see it like a like a Fitbit on the shower, on the wall, in the car, on the trash can. I want to know what these numbers are. And then I can apply the sort of front-end UI, UX, uh, sort of game game design, behavior change stuff on that data. And that really absorbed the last uh, eight years of my life, was trying to study this stuff and truly master the theory and the design, um, the, the academic research on this space. And in that time, I have... Uh, designed many many different concepts about how you could really take that data and design it in a way that's going to get people to change i have a podcast where i interview academics on the research about it i do consulting i have a book i have a ted talk so this kind of this nexus of feedback loops and behavioral psychology has really become this world that i have mastered and i never did um, raise the venture capital funding or sort of do what I came to Silicon Valley uh, to do. Instead, I just developed this kind of deep mastery around this one, this one space that's kind of endlessly uh, fascinating. So what, where do we start with the climate response? Uh, you know, let's take the, zoom, the doom out of the conversation. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, uh, the other sort of part of, of what I do, which is not as uh, data-driven, it's more of a a spiritual or creative calling, which is that I'm just sort of over the whole, I've never been called by the whole doom, the world's going to die, like we're all sort of scared of climate change message. Like I get it uh, intellectually, like I understand the, the science, but just on a personal level, this does not motivate me at all. I'm motivated by the idea of like creating an amazing new world that we can build a whole new world where like where our technology our modern technology and the ecosystem and our urban environments all become as one the way that we've done it so far the way that humanity has done it is to build our technology and our civilization at the expense of nature as we grow gdp as we build technology as we make life more convenient for ourselves nature suffers and then nature suffers then we suffer and i think we're yeah. going to reach what i 
aspire for is to reach some kind of singularity or some kind of asymptote in uh, humanity's relationship with nature where we where we stop that, where we truly deeply understand the Earth's ecosystems and then all the amazing technology that we've developed and our, the, the amazing lifestyle that we're able to live now can actually integrate as one with the Earth's ecosystems and they're blended and we understand this um, this symbiosis and this synchronicity between between the two. And so when you think about that as an aspiration to go for, then it becomes this really exciting challenge. You know, it's like going to the moon or trying to solve like incredible technical challenges. But it's not technology separate to nature, it's technology integrated with nature. Um, and so I create these visions of uh, visualizations of like eco-cities and ecotopias. I teach kids about how to imagine ecotopias. Uh, and just this idea that you should be able to imagine an amazing future world and then reverse engineer it. It's really quite a simple and obvious concept, but yet this is frequently is. missing in the environmental um, conversation. It's all like doom, 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 terrible, terrible, problem, problem, problem. I'm like, let's imagine the solution and then reverse engineer that. And I think that's a way, way better way to frame environment and sustainability. I guess the the other challenge that um, we t discussed was it was just around the whole psychology of change, the engagement of how your approach on uh, triggering what would be moving the needle in an, uh, uh, being active and getting a system response, let's say for the for the people involved in in uh, climate change uh, through gamification. So I think you have a thesis. You can tell us a little bit more about that and why games work. Yeah, yeah. And just to sort of like wrap it together with what I was just saying, like it really as an overall framework makes sense that you should imagine the future destination of where you want to go, like the goal, and then that's the qualitative side, and then you bring in the quantitative side. How do you measure what metric is it that's going to get you there? And then you figure out how to track that progress and develop milestones, and that's where the gamification and the feedback loops and the behavior design come in. It's sort of like a vehicle of how to track everybody towards um, this vision. And so that's where the two things, the ecotopia vision, solar punk, and the measurement-driven feedback loops really ultimately um, come together. Um, but to put in a, in a nutshell about how I like to explain the, the power of using an evidence-based behavioral psychology-informed approach is that... What about most people? Yeah, most people. I just put a new, a new phrase on my website that puts all these like gobbly big words together. Um, and I was like, effort, everybody can just deal. Um, so the, the way I teach it is that people in uh, environment make three mistakes when they're trying to convince other people to come and do all the stuff that we need everybody to do. And it's very, very natural to make these mistakes, but we're not really aware of them. The first one is that we think that increasing people's knowledge will get people to change. And these mistakes are made right from major governments through to major big international organizations, right down to smaller governments, to startups, to businesses, to activists, to indie creatives and entrepreneur, like everybody on the level of education, whether you've got a PhD or you're still like a, a kid at school, like <clears throat> these mistakes are universal. So the number yeah. one is if we just give more knowledge to people, this is called the value action gap or the information deficit hypothesis. And it is widely documented that increasing people's knowledge about climate or about the environment does not directly lead people to make change. The second one is caring. If people just cared more, people are so selfish. If they just cared more, again, mm. getting people to care more 
is not a direct lever to getting people to actually to take action. And the third one is money. If we just made it more expensive or we just made it cheaper, that money is the major driver. It's shown over and over again that these three are not the major drivers of what get human beings to do stuff. They're ingredients that might help, but they're not what we need to be adding more of. And so what we need to do is instead look at the way human, the human brain, human beings function, how they actually take an action. There's five big levers that you can push. Number one is goals and rewards, hacking into the dopamine system. And this is the, the, the feedback loop is core to this. Give people a goal, track progress towards that goal, and then reward people as they make progress towards that goal. That's that feeling of like ticking things off the to-do list. That's um, hacking into the dopamine system. The second one is social comparison. Once you have the data, you can compare people. Humans are primarily comparative creatures. We look at a group and we think, are we doing better? Are we doing worse? It's a fundamental cognition to look at different things and compare them. So you want to yep. add in that, um, that social comparison. Third one is imitation. If I see somebody doing something, I'll do it too. If I see you gardening, I might be like, oh, I'll, I'll garden as well. If I see you um, using a reusable shopping bag, maybe I'll, I'll do it too. We, we actually cannot stop ourselves from imitating people. It's so um, ingrained in these mirror neurons that we have that you it's very awkward to actually not copy people around you. Imagine if you go to a party and everybody's doing something and you're different. That feels really weird. You really do need to copy. And you know when people are doing body language, how they kind of copy each other? So we want to be using social imitation. Um, and the fourth one is group identity. We really think of ourselves um, in the context of groups. So when you bring these actions into your sort of group identity and you're part of a group, that will encourage people then to take action because nobody wants to get kicked out of the group. If you imagine like back um, tens of thousands of years ago when we were in tribes, to be kicked out of the group was death. This is why we're so afraid of social rejection. So bringing in that deep power of group identity is really strong. And the fifth one is trust. If I make a promise to you, like if I write down on a piece of paper, like Leon, I promise for a whole month I will take my solar panel and my battery, which I showed you last night, yeah, out, you to the pool, out to the pool and I will charge it every single day. And then at night time when I know the Californian grid is using up um, a lot of CO2, I will switch everything off and just run my computer and my Wi-Fi off my battery. And I promise to do it every single day for a month there is a very strong likelihood that I will actually do that because I made a promise to you and I don't want to let you down. I don't want to look like a loser. I don't want to break a sense of trust because trust is also core to human relationships. So when you look through your environmental change using these five levers, these are evidence-based, proven over and over again to activate people to change. They don't rely on knowledge and caring and money. They're far more stronger than these things. And they really, really get people to take action. And so all of the design I do, all everything I teach, everything I do is just looking at these main five principles and then yep. just working back from there to try to think like, how do I design a concept or an app or software or anything at all, an intervention that is going to um, just really tap into this motivational core? I really think it's an interesting kind of combination uh, of uh, interface, feedback, and uh, systems in order to do this. Uh, you're an environmental engineer. I'm a systems engineer, so I've been dealing with feedback loops for a number number of uh, technology uh, jobs through my career. And this is really the first time I've packaged it all together, really facing community 
and then industry that has never had this type of feedback loop before. Um, I think we talked about it uh, last night. Uh, I can't believe that the scale solar park uh, industries really deploy solar panels with no feedback loops. They have to trust the the tech sheet that comes from the solar panel vendor, um, but then they have to. There's no way to verify that it's actually performing in the field. And I think the same things are happening with other parts of the climate industry. Some of the challenges that we have, people have to trust opaque data, and there's no real way to verify it. And this is why it has to be a data-driven initiative. Uh, but it can't just be software. There has to be some some changes in the, in the infrastructure. Yeah, like the absence of really granular environmental data is staggering. Like when I spent my little time, my couple of years living in the hacker houses of Silicon Valley, learning how to code, there was an API for everything. Like you could just send like a curl request. You could get any bit of data. You could integrate with like Google Analytics or like financial um, APIs, weather APIs, like whatever you kind of wanted to get, you could just like write this one single sort of like string of code that would sort of request the data from this external system. And then when I started thinking about the whole like environmental design thing, I just kind of assumed that all that stuff would exist for like environmental stuff. I'm like, yeah, obviously like the the electricity utility has just made something and I can just like grab my electricity data from my smart meter uh, or from the water utility or like someone's got figured out what the tree cover is from satellites. And then when I looked into every single data stream from waste, trees, um, carbon in the grid, electricity, gas, fuel, air pollution, like there was nothing there. Like and even with electricity, which is the easiest one to measure, and we do have so many sensors, it's still seems like it's only at about maybe 20% of like what it should be in terms of being measured. Like in like a lot of places don't even have smart meters. Like you don't even know from day to day. Your feedback loop is maybe 30 days old, like in terms of what you're getting, in terms of or, getting or an entire city. Every quarter. Yeah, like, you yeah, might like get they're a really, really, they're really low. Um, we have a pretty advanced system by utility standards here in California, and they have an API that we can get to. Um, my computer programmer, I was working with on it. He said it is literally, he's like giving me gray hairs because like he said, this API is like built so badly. Um, and apparently it takes like almost a full-time employee to just what they call babysit the API because it breaks so often and it's like so like badly, badly done. So if you want to use it, you basically have to be like, you have to basically traumatize a computer programmer through having to, to use it. And then you still don't even get it in real time. You only get it two days two days late like because and i'm like why can't i just get it from my smart meter down here oh because it doesn't have like the radio signal it's called this like zigbee protocol to send it up to me and if i want to get it i have to buy another device for a hundred dollars on amazon and then i have to set it up on my wi-fi and it will send a signal down to my smart meter and i'm like why didn't they build this stuff in the first place i don't know why they didn't build it in the first place but they seem to roll out billions of dollars worth of smart meters all over california without actually anyone being able to read them in real time so I'm just like, oh, my God. And then we don't even have it per city. Like, do you know how the, the, do you know what the city has to do to get their feedback loop? They have to email PG&E. Half the time PG&E doesn't even get back to them. They have to wait for months. And then eventually PG&E may send them a spreadsheet once a year for our city to get a sense of what their emissions are from the electricity grid for our zip code. Like, it is so, can you believe it is that primitive? It is that primitive. 
Well, you know, you work in this space, but it drives me nuts, this stuff. The way that even the utility looks at energy and they don't even have a metric around CO2. You're saying that you created this, this Chrome extension and uh, in your kind of discovery tour of, of what was needed, you, you crafted this uh, particular extension. And it was really um, surprising that, that no one internally had even thought about having a metric this way. Yeah, well, when you start working on electricity, you realize that there's only really three ways to, to measure it, which is in kilowatts or kilowatt hours, which everybody's really familiar with. Um, then there's money. That's another way to, to do it. Uh, but then there's also the CO2. And everybody who's worked in electricity is used to communicating everything in watts. And then when they're trying to motivate people, they're either thinking, well, maybe we tell people how much energy they've saved in watts, or maybe we'll tell them how much money they're saved. Um, but like I said, mentioned before about the behavioral science research, money is not like a really big motivator to get people to save energy or do stuff for the environment. We're not talking about huge amounts of money either in the electricity, with the electricity bill for a lot of people. It's just, just not enough to motivate them. But if we're asking people to save energy for the environment, isn't... CO2 from the emissions, what we should be measuring, isn't that ultimately like the mission? And now that there's so much solar coming on the grid, every kilowatt hour is not equal at all. Like 20 years ago, you know, kilowatts through different times of the day may have had a pretty similar like carbon emissions. But now, especially here in California, and uh, as you mentioned in South Australia now, they are, they're actually, the entire grid is actually frequently 100% powered by solar. So if you're telling people to like save energy, like in the daytime, um, if kilowatt hours is your metric, it's actually a pretty useless metric to use. Exactly. Because the only kilowatt hours that really matter are the ones at night when there aren't all the solar panels. So why are we even measuring when it comes to environment? I mean, when it comes to trying to get people to respond environmentally or cities or utilities or whatever, why are we even talking about kilowatt hours at all? Like we should be just looking at the CO2. It's actually a really simple like philosophy. It's, you, like the philosophy could not get more simple. It's like figure out the one metric about what you want to change. Obviously, it's CO2 with electricity. Let's measure it. Let's show it in a feedback loop. And then we start to add on some extra like abstractions. We're always, first thing I do is just apply color. Let's color grade it so we can like tell what the data is doing. And then you can apply sort of comparisons or visualizations or other stuff. But yeah, I just got that data feed. It's available on Kaizo, the, um, the utility, what's it called? Utility regulator, um, system, no, not regulator, systems operator, California systems operator. We get it from their website. This data that's hidden way down in the back of the website that's kind of hard to find just made it into this beautiful Chrome extension. It uh, changes color based on the carbon intensity. Uh, it's real time. It's really easy to use. It's really nice. It shows the chart. It shows that curve that happens at nighttime. Carbon emissions um, peak. You get a sense of different times of times of day and also weather systems. On hot days, it goes through the roof. You can exactly. really see how AC just like destroys the planet. And then on really um, on the weekends when people are outdoors, there's there's literally like no CO two coming out of the grid uh, on a like a sort of a temperate day. It's in May is the time of year and i've been watching it for years now getting this really good sense of it but anyway you asked about my my experience of shopping this um we made different incarnations of this app that use co2 as the primary metric um around the different utilities and ccas around california and they were just kind of like shocked they were like 
wow, this is like so advanced. This is so progressive. This is like, they were like, we've never seen anything like this before. You know, like I had like a spaceship or something and I'm like, guys, you should have built this. Like I shouldn't be the one who's coming. Like you should have built this 10 years ago. Like why isn't it already built? It's basically just like a traffic light for CO2. Like it should already be there. (laughs) And the idea of measuring not measuring but just showing people their impact in co2 not kilowatt hours was just like it was like another world for them um and i was really surprised about how like i didn't think it was that advanced but they did and that was kind of um quite strange for me to experience what we found is the people that own that data the smart meter data they really have used it to weaponize tariffs against customers so that they don't change their behavior they actually consume more energy so th- this is what happened in Victoria. There's a $3 billion rollout of smart meters in Victoria. I was part of that uh, program. What ended up happening is that the customers did not get l- real-time live data. They could not change their behavior during the day when the weather pattern changed or their solar panels might be available. They got that data and, and with a lag point and that the um, the energy retailers used that data to really uh, bump up the tariff and, and gamify it against the customer. And this this is what's happened with, with the incumbents, is that they've used the data in an improper way and weaponized it against the, the consumer. What we think that needs to happen is there needs to be a data utility, a data utility that that uh, benefits the commons. And this is, becomes a social good. For you and your community engagement, what has been the, the real change? Have you measured um, change and then what what has been a successful implementation of some of the the programs even at a policy level versus a data or monitoring level what what if what's been a success story or even even more of a learning curve what what's been a, a something that's not worked out so well uh, well I mean just in California as uh, as a whole there's a um, a rapid movement for cities to start banning natural gas and even the sale of natural gas um, like water heaters like that's kind of like the decarbonization is kind of the really big thing so in terms of a policy level that seems to be just getting knocked down like flies right now um, which is which is great to see but the um, the little bit of a maybe the shadow side or bit of a dark side of that is that people get really excited about the idea of removing gas and going fully electric but there feels like there's blinders on that that electricity still comes from gas if it's at night time and that seems to i feel like most of the industry and uh people in california are totally oblivious to that green power is not green at night no matter how green like they say it is and if you get your heat pump water heater and then it charges on electricity in the night it's not like that much different to your old gas system um so i'd like to see more sort of awareness happen around that um and it just in terms of like just a project that I've done where I saw a really powerful change was in developing the um, the energy lollipop prototype app that we developed using the utility uh, data, using their very difficult to use, uh, very difficult to program um, API, but using CO2 as the central, as the central metric. And we use color, um, use gamification, comparison, showing how you compare to your average, using groups, using badges, uh, and color was really like the main ingredient with that. So you would look at it every day. It would show you what your carbon emissions were for your electricity account. Um, and it would be red if you had done worse or it would be green. And I had a beautiful color spectrum that I built. And it was really pretty, this app that I that I developed. And in 
uh, I did a user testing with about 50 people. You know, we, we um, logged them on, sort of talked about it, got their feedback. And I was not asking people to change their behavior. I was just getting feedback on the UI and the UX. And let me, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you know, you may already know this, from smart meters that show people the data of their electricity, do you know on average, like how much that changes people's behavioral patterns? One in a hundred, two in a hundred, that would be... Uh, well, as, like, well, they measure it in percentages, like how much they reduce their kilowatt hours. Okay. This two, is, this two, is the, two to five percent would be my guess. Yeah, it's about that. Like this is over yeah. like lots of people. I think even eight percent, it goes, you know, the meta studies show between two and eight percent is the power of a feedback loop just on its own. Yeah. Just a feedback loop, just the data. Now we can do more than that. When we add in social comparison and a bit of gamification, it gets more powerful. Yeah. Our energy lollipop app that used CO2, remember this is CO2, not kilowatt hours, and color, and all the gamification stuff. Do you know what our range was? It would be it's over 70. 40 and 70%. Yeah. It was yeah. huge. Yeah. It may have been also because of the high touch point that we were actually having conversations with the people. I think that might have boosted it as well. But 40 to 70% reduction in, I remember, not kilowatt hours for CO2. That means they're shifting times of day. We looked at all the charts from the people that installed it, and there was just this drop in, like, every chart from our users. And I was like, oh, my God, this stuff, like, really, really works. Um, so that was really, really amazing to see just, like, how powerful this um, – like, when you really put the gamification together stuff well, like, and design it well, like, it really it really works. Um, and uh, oh, just another little thing is um, – I think the power of pledges, this is not about electricity, but just getting somebody right. to write down on a piece of paper, just I promise to do something. Yeah. And then if you can take a selfie of them, just works every time. Massively <laughs> underutilized, low-tech solution right, that I just right. want to see sort of taken up um, that is just remarkably psychologically sticky. And, and what, what was the utilities response? Because if people are using less energy that is billable revenue for them, um, what what's the incumbent's response? Do, don't you think there has to be a different type of driver for what what is you know they're looking for shareholder returns, and uh, don't you get this conflict between uh, a utility company that wants to make revenue versus you know uh, getting an environmental change? What what do you think is the dynamic there, and how's it playing out with the communities you've been involved in? Um, well, it's a little bit different here. Because they're not purely commercial entities, you know, they're highly uh, regulated by government. So they're more like a sort of a hybrid commercial sort of government owned um, entity. And we have this thing called CCAs in California, these yeah. community choice aggregators. So they're not for, for profits, but not for profits can still be just as, um, you know, income seeking and competitive as companies, even though they don't have uh, shareholders. So I think the way you're seeing it play out is this very strong interest in decarbonization means that they're taking away all of the money that was spent on gas infrastructure and then bringing it to the energy utilities that do electricity only. So they are funding people. One utility here will give you $10,000 to take out all of your gas appliances and go electric because all that money is being taken away from PG&E. And that means that the energy utility, which is um, SMUD, Sacramento um, utility, 
They get to take all of that. They take it all, right? So that totally works within commercial capitalist um, markets really, really efficiently. So there's just like incentives all over the place, right? Yeah, we've talked with MUD. So mm -hmm. uh, that's one example, Mm -hmm. I guess. We've seen what they're doing with uh, solar. Um, They want to create their own solar uh, uh, generation for for municipalities. So SMUD is really an interesting case study, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, But also, like what I just mentioned before, that push is not really around so much to remind people that they need to use more electricity in the day and less at night, that kind of, you know, what they call like demand r- response. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that I feel like that sort of consciousness is not there as much, but it still is an interest interest to them. So it doesn't really, um, we're not, the kind of approach of the carbon-based approach uh, that we're doing with Energy Lollipop, which shows this intense spike around dinner time and through the night, doesn't really call on people to use less electricity. It really actually works with the, with the utility's financial interest because they want people to use more electricity in the day as well because they have all this extra solar solar power and they exactly. don't want people using electricity during the big spike at dinner time because the wholesale market of the yeah. prices changes a lot and so they they're paying all these different crazy prices on the wholesale market and they want people to not be using electricity during those crazy prices uh, and so something like ours, which just communicates CO2 through the time of the day and kind of invites people to shift their energy use over to the middle of the day, really works in with their financial uh, okay. objectives. And they're trying to also bring in through, um, through the policy a different pricing structure that prices electricity less expensive during those peak hours in the day and more expensive during the um, – I think they for 4 p.m. and to 9 p.m. or 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. They've increased the rates a little bit. It's only a tiny bit. It's only like two cents a kilowatt a kilowatt hour. So it's just this tiny little nudge. Uh, but they were re- very interested in the idea that there could be a tool that communicated why they are adding this extra price tariff to this yeah. evening electricity it's because you know there can be so much tariff. pushback. Yeah. yeah. So much pushback around price. Um, but unfortunately, we got a bit unstuck with it because it was in COVID and everything was really difficult. Um, and utilities, just from a personal entrepreneurial point of view, selling applications to utilities is like no small effort. It's like a multi-year serious yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. investment. And my co-founder and I, in the middle of COVID, just um, we just got a bit unstuck with all of the meetings and the RFPs and the kind of very long, tiresome process of working yeah. with utilities. One example in the UK is Octopus Energy. Octopus Energy has made a tariff that is basically free uh, in in the peak periods of solar in the afternoon in certain regions of the UK be, because they said it, it's so abundant, we, it's not even worth measuring, is what they've said. So you can plug in anything you want uh, in the middle of the day during these two uh, two to four hour blocks and uh, basically said it's so abundant, we're, we're not even going to bother trying to bill it and track it. So that that's the opposite, I guess, you know, uh, of an incentive. They just said, well, it's too cheap to even measure. So that that's the uh, the mechanisms that are at play. One end, uh, a heavy heavy regulated, um, you know, player, and then the other other side, you know, someone who's got the degree of freedom to offer that. So it's it's really interesting. That's the way it should be. I mean, if unless it's people are going to use so much, but yeah, like yeah, there people, should be at least like a free hour. It. 
Exactly. Or a free rolling hour or if, however they want to do it. Some sort of like free or super cheap hour. They can they can yeah. start piloting it. Maybe they can make it half price and see what the demand is. That during these middle bits of the day, they don't need to switch off the solar panels. They have to actually curtail them. They turn them off because there's too much. Yeah, same in South Australia. Exactly. Okay, very good. So, Katie, in, prepar- in preparation, uh, I guess we, we've been uh, experimenting by using our sensors as a bit of a digital twin scenario where we can simulate what is a physical uh, instance of a panel or, or an energy asset. And uh, I think that you've got experience with digital twins and a municipal situation. Um, can you explain more? Yeah, I've been uh, lucky enough to work with a fabulous company called IES who does building management uh, systems and software. And they build these things called digital twins, which means that a digital twin of a building, like a commercial, large commercial building or a school or a campus. So they fill the uh, the building with sensors, sensing the electricity, the indoor air quality, the lighting, the amount of occupants, the temperature, all of the stuff that a building needs to know in order to regulate its temperature and, and airflow. Uh, but engineers are um, usually like really good with data and systems that aren't necessarily as good with like, oh, wow, we have a lot of data. And a digital twin for a building, like, that's a lot of data. You've got to think of every single room, every minute of every day. There are the seasons, there's the outdoor air temperatures. So um, they've come to me a few times to um, to help them design dashboards to actually display this data in a way that's uh, sort of elegant and easy to to understand, and it's no easy job to take all that complex data and sort of turn it into something that's going to really make sense and be intuitive and easy. So that's something that I've had the um, the pleasure of working on. Uh, and you know, in, in this this one example with um with solar panels, I hope they don't mind me mentioning it. I don't think it's too um, private information. But um, on one digital twin they had, the, a school had put in like a whole lot of solar panels. And if a school is a big organization, so maybe that's, I don't know, $50,000 worth of solar panels, they'd been running for like a whole year and nobody had noticed until they went in there and put in their software that the solar panels had literally like not been turned on or not been connected. And they thought that they were working. They thought all this time right. that it was a whole yeah. year's worth of electricity that had just yeah. not been generated because people weren't measuring the system. Or just the lag in, in even monitoring or looking at something this way. So it's, it's still endemic in the way the systems and the business business engages with their energy bill, right? It's just something that has to be paid. They're not proactively uh, looking at it. Yeah, so they've got one group of people over here signing the check for the solar panels and paying the installers. And then another person over here who's just like paying the electricity bill. And somewhere along the line, they never kind of connected that, Hey, we just put on these solar panels. Shouldn't the electricity bill be a lot less? Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. Nobody was nobody was tracking it. I suppose they were eventually. Eventually, they figured they figured it out. Yeah, yeah. So, Katie, um, we're full in on solar and uh, solar energy uh, as sunified. But what what technology do you expect the most of? What's going to really move the needle? What do you think a combination or or an engagement you see happening? that's not quite here or something that's going to happen in the future that, that has the most promise? Oh, I don't know so much about a, like a specific sort of hardware technology because there's a lot of great stuff out there that just needs to be sort of implemented more. But one huge gap that I see, perhaps you could call it a technology um, or a way that technology could help, which is getting people into groups 
everybody is trying to influence everybody as if they're all individual islands instead of realizing that we need to get people into groups. So if you have a suburb, don't just communicate to everybody in the suburb. Get people into groups and then get those groups to work together and then to compete against each other to improve right. their environmental performance, whether One it's side schools of the or to corporations. Uh, to another side, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it, I think that is something that we just all massively miss in our right. thinking about how to sort of roll this out. So even with your sensors on the utility scale solar, I would urge you to think, well, how can I get people into groups of just small groups, five to eight people, and get them working together towards a goal? Like that is the thing that every single social scientist that I interview on my podcast talks about, and I'm not cherry-picking for that knowledge. That is something that has come out of every single podcast. It's what I've seen in my own work. It's what I see missing. And once you get that human psychological emotional bond with people working towards a goal like that is how all change in all society since the beginning of time that is the only way that change happens is, yeah. is through that like we're, we're in a group right now doing something like if you're not doing that it's going to be really slow and really hard and that's the thing technology trying to think through how technology can better make that happen or enable these small groups of people working actively towards goals the social sciences are really a strong um, strong requirement for this type of technology engagement. Ultimately, I think it was Nic Nicholas Negroponte that said, as much as you have high tech, you need high touch in order to make it work together. Uh, and that was really something that was a driver for me when the internet first became a thing, you know, that, that whole stance that you can't do one without the other. And you know what? There is no app or platform or anything right now that supports that. They're yeah. all, think of, you know, what we talked about, Sense, um, the other, the rainforest, like whatever apps are out there to teach people green stuff, none of them cater for these small groups and then having multiple groups working within a bigger group, sort of like a football teams working together in terms yeah, of yeah. the technology. It hasn't been built. Nobody's done it. So there's plenty yeah. of technology work to do to help people create these groups. So one thing about my experience here in Netherlands is that uh, no one, no one's ever put uh, together these kind of cooperatives uh, for, I guess, change and requirements like uh, the, the the culture of Netherlands really invented this, these cooperatives that really built the dikes together, had windmills to pump the water out so you weren't uh, hip deep in seawater. So this kind of forcing function of the nature making sure that everyone had to work together to dig the ditches, to build the dikes, to make sure windmills were working, uh, really means that this culture is here. I felt it as, as a Dutchman by DNA, but it really is happening here uh, as far as this type of community engagement. It's something that we find exciting. We're, we're first putting sensors on a community here called uh, the island of Amalon. It, it'll be a community-owned solar park with our sensors on it. But people have this sense of ownership of a solar panel that might be remote from their home. But the, the coming together for, for change is really endemic in this kind of culture. Whereas if you go to New York, everyone seems to be fighting for their own little domain and space. Uh, you know, this kind of dog-eat-dog -dog mentality in some of these other cityscapes are very hard to, to bootstrap these kind of communities. So uh, I guess we, do, we, we will need these social scientists, these people that can perfect 
community engagement. Uh, and, you know, there, there should be an app for this to scaffold these discussions, to onboard people and to make these collectives work. Yeah, yeah. And I honestly, after being very, very um, te tech, technological, technophilic for the last um, 10 years, I'm actually not that interested in technology um, anymore right now. I'm interested in how many awkward conversations can you have with people around you? <laughs> and I kind of feel like that's the kind of nut to break because you can live in your own world of technology and hang out with other environmentalists and nerd out on all this stuff. But can you walk down the street and door knock on everybody in your community? Can you talk to other parents at the school who aren't yeah. like you? Can you go and talk to the, the local Safeway and grocery stores and hotel yeah. owners? It's like those interpersonal conversations with people that are not like you, that's really what spreads the change forward. And that's what's that's hard good. and that's what nobody wants to do. And everybody no who does consulting with me, I say person. that. I'm like, go and get a group of five people, have high touch point, have phone calls, get their phone um, number, send them text messages, be like really, really hand-holdy, interpersonal. And people are just like, oh, my God, I just want to build a $5 million budget video game that's going to create climate action. And I'm just like, <laughs> nobody it wants to do the high interpersonal touch point yeah, stuff. Yeah. And that's really the vanguard of where the social change yeah. is. No, I, I have attended a community solar park building um, course and it was a, it was built like a field guide. Basically, it would, you would have to pick a couple mavens, like pick someone who knew a bit about bookkeeping, someone who knew a bit about you know maybe building something. Solar parks aren't hard to build. Um, all you need is an Allen key, a sledgehammer, and and a Phillips screwdriver. So there's not really a lot of technical skill. There's a little bit of wrangling of an Excel document to figure out what the go no go. Can you build it? Will it make money? Um, but but after that, it provided you can get some seed capital. Building solar parks uh, for a community is something that you should be able to muster a small collective and do many of these, tens of thousands of them. So that that's really the challenge, right? Maybe it's a maybe it's the takeaway from our discussion. It really wasn't scripted, and uh, we we had this kind of premeditated. But uh, you know, it is good to discover these things. Yeah, that's going to be the next offshoot. Awkward conversations with strangers about community solar parks. How to have yeah. awkward conversations with people yeah. and script that for them. That'll be, that's the breakthrough. Yeah, it's not going to be done in the metaverse. I don't think you're going to have an awkward conversation in the metaverse about, you know, solar communities. Maybe, mm. uh, maybe it'll, it'll break through. But I think you, you, you're right. You need to find the, the people that are motivated to door knock and say, I'm looking to build a solar community. I want to build a solar panel on the car park at the soccer field. We can all benefit from this. Are you interested? Like, you know, can you, can you be part of my help, helping group? Um, you know, or, or, or can your teenage son who's also, you know, in, into changing the, the, the green uh, economy, can he help? You know, is there a way that we can do this? Yeah, yeah. And we have to be those people ourselves. You can't just like look for other people to do it for you. Exactly. If you're the entrepreneur who wants to change, you have to do it and then show by example, lead by example. And then other yeah. people should be like, oh, it's actually not that hard. I'll help out too. Thanks, Katie, for your valuable insights and perspectives on harnessing technology to combat the climate crisis. It's evident that storytelling and gamification have the power to create lasting change. While we've reached the end of the episode, you can please go and have a look at Katie's website, katiepatrick.com. The link will be in the show notes. 
If you're interested in renewable energy, solar energy, and energy innovation, subscribe to this podcast now. And listeners, please remember that small actions all add up to a significant impact. Stay tuned for more transformative conversations on Here Comes the Sun. Here Comes the Sun.